News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. If you work these hours, if, I mean, if you're up right now or already at work, then you probably live a life of being mm, somewhat sleep-deprived. And actually, these days, it might not matter which hours you work, you are very likely not getting the sleep that you need. Now, I can tell when I am sleep-deprived. I mean, words are harder for me to reach for. I just have more brain fog. I am not good to talk to on a Friday afternoon, trust me. Uh, Now, this isn't new or it's not a modern thing. Sleep deprivation has been studied for hundreds and hundreds of years, and that's what we're going to talk about with Johnny Thompson this morning, philosopher and writer for Big Think. Hi, Johnny. Hi, how are you doing? Uh, Well, I'm okay. I've had a good night's sleep. How's your sleep? (laughs) Yeah, not so good. I mean, I've got two young kids, so I've kind of like I've kind of bought oh. into that really. But um, yeah, so um, yeah, no, I mean, that which kind of inspired me researching this article, to be honest, because I found myself on a, a late night rabbit hole, kind of investigating yeah what sleep deprivation does to you, and um, I found myself on this subreddit called um, Sleep Tripping, which is where people um, deliberately try to go days without sleeping to induce like the hallucinations. Why would they I mean, do we, that? Why? Why? Well, yeah. I mean, we should. I mean, we should definitely tell the listeners not to try this at home because you know it is a very dangerous thing to do. But it's. Um, I mean, the idea is that you know sleep deprivation induces these hallucinations which aren't dissimilar to uh, certain drugs um, like LSD or kind of like hallucinogenic drugs like that way. So, I mean, it's actually a story that the book Jekyll and Hyde, if you've ever read that by Robert Louis Stevenson, was, mm-hmm. was written after he had had like sleeplessness for several days and. If you've ever read it, you, you, you'll know there is a kind of slightly insomniac and, and trippy feel to it, really. But I mean, so I, I mean, I came at it from a philosopher's point of view, really, because I was wondering, you know, what effect does sleep deprivation have on our perception and on our, our sense of reality? Because when you take certain intoxicants like like beer or, or certain drugs, you kind of know that you are intoxicated. So if you're drunk, for example, you might find yourself saying things which are a bit incoherent or you might try to cook something that ends up being ridiculously wrong. Um, but with, with sleep deprivation, you don't know you're intoxicated. And a lot of the effects of sleep deprivation aren't that dissimilar to intoxication. And according to some studies, about one third of all of your listeners now are sleep deprived. So the logical conclusion of that really is that one third of your listeners are intoxicated to, to some extent, really. <laughs> First yeah. of all, I feel like that's a low number. You know, sleep deprivation is such a common thing these days because they're so busy. People are looking at their phones. They're not getting the deep sleep. I just find it fascinating to think that what you looked into is that way back when even ancient philosophers were kind of studying this. Yeah, well, that's it. And I guess, I mean, there are two different types of sleep deprivation, really. I mean, the first type is this the, the serious sleep deprivation, which is what you might have if you've had like an international flight or you've been up all night with, with a newborn, as I, as I can speak to. Um, and if anyone listening, they'll, they'll kind of know what that feels like. It kind of can warp your perception. It kind of like changes your mind. There's a kind of a fuzziness at the fringes of reality and, and there's a sluggishness to things. The point is, if, if you carry on that for a few more days, then that's when it starts to lead to this kind of like hallucination level, um, which is where uh, people are, you know, see, they'll, they'll see people or things which aren't aren't there at all. And, you know, the reason why it's interesting as a philosopher is that, you know, we, we, we have to trust our senses. Um, I mean, the philosopher in a Descartes once wrote that the senses deceive us, but and it's prudent never to trust wholly what has been deceiving you once. So, and with with, with sleep deprivation, we we can't really trust what we're we're seeing. Um, but I have to say that that, that one in three um, statistic isn't about this kind of sleep serious sleep deprivation. It's more about a kind of milder sleep deprivation, which most people have when they've you know they've had one or two bad nights sleep. Um, so, um, but even in this case, it it, it does um, massively detrimental things to your kind of your consciousness and, and your and your cognitive processes. So, um, I mean, the biggest thing is is about memories. So, I'm sure a lot of your listeners will, will know that when when you sleep, your your memories are stored, really, or at least, at least sorted. So, um, when you don't get a good night's sleep, you um, your mem- your brain will store memories differently. Uh, in fact, they get jumbled up. And so um, what usually happens, actually, is that your brain will kind of store negative and intrusive thoughts um, disproportionately uh, over, over um, the normal thoughts, basically. So, um, I mean, Winston Churchill, uh, he, he famously had these long, long naps in the afternoon because he'd tell everyone that if he didn't have these long naps, it, 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 he couldn't cope. Um, he, it's the only way he could cope with the stress <laughs> and the hardship of World War II was you having know, a, a good nap in the afternoon. I, I support this because I know for a lot of, like, napping almost feels like like it's gone out of style and when people do nap they don't want to talk about the fact that they nap but yet I know for a lot of people napping is really essential 
Yeah, and no, that's a really, a really important part of the culture. I mean, I mean, there, there, there are certain subcultures out there who, who kind of do, who, who do do like, re, like regular nap throughout the day. Like they'll have a, only like a four or five hour sleep in the evening, and then they'll they'll get their time in the rest of the day and things. And and different cultures do all sleep differently across across the day, and mainly to do with weather patterns, really, actually. But um, um, yes, yeah, so, I mean, the other way that sleep deprivation really, really affects us is um, our sense of time. I mean, so there was a 2003 study which um, studied um, serious sleep deprivation and, and people who are seriously sleep deprived found that, that they felt like an hour would last, you know, two or three hours. They felt that the time would, right. just, would really drag by. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it really can affect us. And I mean, the other thing as a philosopher, I mean, it, it, it's interesting how we, we forget how we dependent we are on this on this basic biological point that we need to get a good, you know, seven to eight hours sleep every night, because not only does it warp our sense of, of reality and our sense of time and our memory storage, but also there's evidence to say that it makes us um, crueler people and that we're kinder and more yes. generous and compassionate and more patient when we've had a good night's sleep. I um, cannot tell um, you how much I agree with that, <laughs> because I know that it makes me uh, a little edgy, you know, a little short-tempered. Yeah. I made that joke about Friday afternoon. That is so true. Like at my house, people know, do not ask me for things on a Friday <laughs> afternoon because I'm so tired from the week that has just happened. So yeah. it's true. And so then why would people do this, like deliberately, um, you know, not get enough sleep as some kind of trick or something? Well, yeah, I mean, so, I mean, the, the people enjoy the, 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 the trip itself. But then, I mean, there has been some like cults of sleep deprivation in, in the past. So Thomas Edison, for example, um, he actually believed that you should try and limit sleep as much as, as possible because he believed it was, it was a recipe for his inspiration and, and success. But I, yeah, I, should, I should say that there is no reputable scientific evidence to show that, so that sleep deprivation is good for you. Um, in, in, fa in fact, you know, it, it, all the evidence seems to say that, that you need to get a good night's sleep to, to function as a human being. But because um, also the other interesting thing from a point of view from a philosopher is that, you know, a lot is written about our rationality and our reason and our higher kind of faculties. But actually, they are all completely ser servants to a good night's sleep, really. So I don't think you can be a good philosopher unless you get a, a good kip at night. <laughs> I believe that. Uh, Johnny, <laughs> thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you very much and uh, have a good one. That's Johnny Thompson, philosopher and writer for Big Think on sleep deprivation. I don't know why people would do this to themselves intentionally. I feel awful when I am sleep deprived. It's not fun. You can feel that your brain is almost like misfiring, you know, and yet some people will do anything, I guess, for clicks. I don't know, attention, something. This is Mornings with Simi. Time now to have Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun join us. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. Okay, let's start with something a little different this morning. Um, let's start with something, some good news, because I love to see that Kim Bolin was honored last night and so deserving of this. Yes. Do you say Lieutenant Governor or Lieutenant Governor Simi? I say Lieutenant Governor because I've been told that that's the proper way to say it. <laughs> we had a Lieutenant <laughs> Governor a few years ago who said that he once went to a class of students and explained that we say Lieutenant Governor because of our British heritage, which is we say Lieutenant, not Lieutenant. That's right. And he said he then got a lovely letter from the students, which they wrote themselves addressed to Dear Left-Handed Governor. So, <laughs> so we try. Anyway, we do. It's an uphill battle some days, but I get it. Yes. Lieutenant Governor. I was at Government House last night. Lieutenant Governor Janet Austin was honoring Kim Bolin, the incredible Kim Bolin. So this was an occasion to mark the remarkable success of something that Janet Austin set in motion, which is a, a fund, a scholarship to or a fellowship to provide funding to British Columbia-based reporters to do uh, the kind of coverage that a lot of news organizations don't have the money to pay for anymore. So travel expenses, research expenses, uh, research time. And the second winner of the fund was Bolin, who went off and produced the series that's been running in the sun, uh, the last few weeks. Uh, it's on the Sun website. It's not paywall. That's part of the terms. And it is on lethal exports. The, it's amazing. You know, I, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things to say about this. But the reason the stories are so significant, apart from the fact that they even got done, British Columbians have long treated the drug trade as if we're just the victims. We are the recipients of an international drug trade that 
cartels, uh, all sorts of people flood British Columbia with drugs and this is terrible and that's why we have so many addicts and all that. This series was a real eye-opener. Even Boland says, who knew a lot, she says the incredible thing she discovered is that we're actually exporters. We're delivering drugs from here to other places and ruining them. So Vietnam, Australia, Fiji, Boland went to all these places, but it, it's incredible. She says that, you know, some of the biggest drug kingpins in the trans-Pacific drug trade are people who earned their trade here in British Columbia. You know, the story, and, the, the thing that got me that she yeah. wrote about, too, was the fact that we talk about all the, the gang warfare here on the streets. That's at the low level, that at the higher levels, these gangs are cooperating and working with each other. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're the collateral damage, but most of these people operate in foreign countries beyond the reach of our authorities here. <laughs> Boland, by the way, as you know, Simi, has a fabulous sense of humor. Yes. And she said, you know what? If it wasn't illegal, this would be a great British Columbia business story. You know, we've started something up here. We had a startup, drug exporting, and now it's all over the Western, uh, all over the Pacific, right? So, but that's how big it is. And she said, it's amazing. She was surprised at how many of the major operators in this trans-Pacific drug trade, as I said, started out in British Columbia and survived the gang wars here, didn't get killed, and are now major players. And, and not surprisingly, these other countries are going, what are you British Columbians doing to stop this trade? And of course, the focus is on the port of Vancouver. Uh, that's interesting too. This whole conversation around the need for port police and the need to police and inspect the containers leaving our port has been jump-started by this series. Uh, I think we had, uh, you know, leaders, Delta in particular, uh, mayor and uh, police chief there both said, they've been talking about this for a while, but the talk on this took off with the publishing of Boland's story. So amazing work. Um, you know, Simi, I've been at the paper for 50 years, as you know, and Boland is one of the most incredible people that ever worked. I think she's one of the most incredible reporters yes, that ever worked in so British true. Columbia. Yeah, people, you, you know, people, people think, oh well, you know, you write critically about politics, you must get a lot of feedback and everything. Politicians are incredibly thick-skinned; they are used to this sort of criticism. I, I mean, I had a cabinet minister once tell me I'd written a critical piece about him, and he said, "Pa." That's nothing. He said, I get worse abuse standing in the checkout line at my local <laughs> supermarket, you know? And this is true. Like, they're so used to it. Kim writes about people that aren't used to being criticized publicly or even reported on publicly. And who and phone her Kim, and tell her. Yeah. Kim gets threatened by people who are actually know how to carry out threats, right? So, Nashi's amazing. Um, so true. I, I'm delighted. Simi, and I said it to the lieutenant governor last night. I said, you know, not to take anything away from your award, but there are awards that go to people and honor the recipient. This is one of those cases, Simi, where the recipient honors the reward. It was a great choice, and I told a couple of members of the judging panel last night uh, that Good. You, you just made a terrific choice giving this to Sim to Kim. Uh, the awards for this year open. There's going to be two of them, one for experienced journalists, one for starting out journalists. And again, uh, if any of the listeners out there are journalists, uh, you should think about applying for this because these resources are critically important. And this is the award that Kim Boland won. Very true. And also, I do recommend that people go to the Vancouver Sun's website and check out those stories. As Vaughn mentioned, they are not paywalled because of the award that helped her do the um, do the work for that. So check that out. Talking politics now, because it sounds like Vaughn, the premier, was uh, back at work yesterday. Yeah, the premier's uh, resumed his pre-election schedule. We're already in the middle of a campaign in case no one's noticed. And you may remember that in the middle of the Selena Robinson imbroglio on Monday, the premier canceled a news conference, which was on rental housing. Uh, that is back on this morning at 9 a.m. David Eby is in Coquitlam 
with the CEO of the BC Rental Housing Fund. So you may remember that a little over a year ago, back in January of last year, EB gave a half a billion dollars in a grant from the budget surplus to a new fund, and the fund was set up to identify rental housing buildings in British Columbia that were on the market and in danger of being uh, renoviction centered or torn down and replaced. And the money was intended to allow nonprofits to buy those buildings and maintain them on the market as rental housing, affordable rental housing. So that was a whole idea. Maybe, as I said, announced it in January of last year. Uh, he oversold uh, how quickly this could be done back in January of last year. He said this would be, they'd be buying buildings in March of last year. Well, here we are today. These are actually the first purchases. And Simi, because the announcement is in Coquitlam with the mayor of Coquitlam, I assume that the first projects they're buying are in Coquitlam. Okay, so it's been, I, I seem to remember when this announcement happened, it was also very short on details at the time, too. Yeah, there was a, it was very short on details. You may remember, they had this giant provincial budget surplus of $6 billion. And the way the accounting rules in government work, they have to get the money out of the door and into somebody else's hands, uh, or it doesn't get counted by the Auditor General as actual spending that occurred last year. So it was a rush job. Uh, they set up very quickly with some arm's length uh, housing nonprofits, indigenous organizations, a foundation to receive this money. And then the foundation was going to hire a CEO and they were going to uh, vet good projects, line them up with nonprofits, and uh, try to get those underway. So that was the concept. Um, as I said, the premier kind of oversold how quickly that could be done. It is, even though it isn't government, it's an awful lot like government and it's taken a long time. Now, you know, a couple of other things happened. The other big uh, thing that the premier couldn't deliver on was he said, this is one time money. This foundation is going to have the money. This fund is going to have half a billion dollars. And from then on, there's no taxpayer involvement. Well, people in the real estate industry pointed out, look, the kind of rental buildings that go on the market out there and that are in danger of being torn down and replaced or subject of renovations, they need a lot of work. They need a lot of maintenance and upkeep. The owner probably hasn't been keeping them up because they're low rent. The rent rates are low, right? So you're not going to be able to get these nonprofits to take on these buildings and maintain the upkeep and do all the repairs, they need cash flow. So the province is going to be adding, throwing in more millions of dollars. I think it's about a million dollars per 400 units for maintenance and upkeep to keep these things operating. Uh, Simi, they said that the $5, $500 million could be leveraged into the purchase of, they guesstimated, 3000 units. So we'll find out today how many units they've actually been able to purchase and put out there uh, with the public's half a billion dollars. And we'll also see how quickly these are actually going to be up and running and available to people on an affordable rental basis. I mean, I would say they, they need to get this in the next six months, right? Because how many yeah. times have we heard from Premier David Eby, like, judge yeah. me on what I do for the election? Well, needs to be done then by October. Yeah, there's a lot of that going on. I see a couple of stories in today's news of people saying they are incredibly frustrated by the government's uh, Find a Family Doctor website that they've been going that, on yeah. to help connect. You know, our government uh, put a huge amount of money into uh, paying family doctors more, putting them on a registration site, getting them to be available. And then if you don't have a family doctor, you go on there and you find a family doctor. And the government claims they've added, what, something like six or 700 more family doctors in BC. But people are finding 
as so often happens with major government announcements, that it's a heck of a lot harder to, family doc- to find a family doctor than the government suggests that it would be. And I think that's probably one of the stories, Simi, we're going to be covering this year is the gap between delivery of what David Eby promised and what's actually happened. I think that is very true. Avon, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. That is Vaughn Palmer there from the Vancouver Sun. This is Mornings with Simi. I think it's safe to say today is a big deal in front of the U.S. Supreme Court because the outcome of what the Supreme Court eventually decides could have a huge influence on the presidential election this year. So let's get the details. Reggie Cicchini is with us now, our Washington correspondent for Global News. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Okay, what is happening? So uh, what is happening is the Supreme Court is sent to hear arguments uh, from both Donald Trump's legal team and uh, from lawyers from the state of Colorado. And this is an appeal to a decision that came out of Colorado that says that Donald Trump uh, is disqualified from being able to appear on their March primary ballots because they believe that he partook in an insurrection and therefore, uh, you know, goes against what the U.S. Constitution says about people who take part in one are ineligible to hold office. It's an un tested theory, which is why we are watching for what the Supreme Court does. Right, because other states have pondered this and kind of not gone this route, right? Well, other states have pondered this. Some have seen the argue, uh, the, the case as kind of dismissed. Others, uh, in the case of the state of Maine, they agree that maybe he could be disqualified, but they weren't going to make a final decision until the U.S. Supreme Court ultimately weighs in. The big thing to watch here, Simi, is Ultimately, a decision is going to have to come from the justices here. But do they do it narrow? Do they do it broad? And does it potentially open the door for other legal battles down the road? This is this. There's a lot that we don't know. And there's a lot that we can guess um, because this is such a huge deal right now. Right. OK, so how is this going to go today? Is it just the arguments today? This is just uh, oral arguments. We've been told that they will last about maybe 80 minutes, uh, an hour and a half, maybe just over an hour and a half. Um, and and then it's into the hands uh, of the nine justices here. You know, a couple of things to point out. This is a stacked court that leans to the conservative side with three justices that have been put in place by Donald Trump. Um, and, and court legitimacy is going to be scrutinized here on whatever they ultimately, um, you know, come to decide here. Do they decide that they're the ones who will be the ultimate arbiters? Do they say this needs to go to Congress? Do they say it needs to go to the to, uh, to secretaries of state around the country? This decision is, you know, they, they try to stay out of the political realm, but there are such huge political repercussions to whatever comes out of this court today um, that, that you know, the arguments they hear and the decision they make will have hugely reverberating impacts. Okay. And this doesn't happen very often, right? Like the, the Supreme Court has to step in on something so consequential involving a, a president. I mean, the last time that there was a, a, a an issue involving the presidency was was in 2000 in Bush v. Gore, uh, when they ultimately determined the presidency. And at the time, the court said that this was not something they ever wanted to wade into again. And you, look, the argument can be made here that the Supreme Court does play a political role here because it's oftentimes political cases, think Roe v. Wade, that get thrust into the laps of the justices and they have to make a decision. This time is different. This, they're trying to... They're trying to determine, you know, eligibility over who can run for president, which is something that's typically left up to either Congress or the states or the Constitution. But there's never been a 14th Amendment insurrection matter in this country since Civil War times. Um, and, and so this is a delicate walk for these justices to realize that there's a political impact to whatever they decide. OK, so this is the first. But is this the last well, I mean, in this case, we don't know. You know, if, if they decide for Colorado, this is going to open up copycat litigation around the country. If they decide for Donald Trump, if it's narrow or broad, you know, this means Trump could be on the ballot. He might not be on the ballot. We could see other cases. They're also dealing with the, the fact that uh, they may be getting an appeal from Donald Trump in the immunity case as to whether or not he can face prosecution. We don't know if uh, if they're going to accept it. They may send it back to the trial judge and let Trump go to trial. And then, you know, ultimately, if he's convicted deal with an appeal at that point. This is this is a court that is going to be, um, you know, consumed by matters having to do with the former president. The question is, will things get done before November? Because again, all of this could 
drastically impact who could be elected president just a few months from now. Oh, boy. Okay. And we know that, uh, you know, U.S. President, former U.S. President Donald Trump, uh, he appointed quite a few members of that Supreme Court. So how is he, what has he said about this? Well, I mean, look, he, the former president has at times, uh, you know, leaned on uh, Justices Barrett uh, and Amy Coney Barrett, uh, rather, uh, uh, Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch uh, to say, look, you wouldn't have these jobs if it weren't for me. But but again, it, it becomes a question of if you're appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court, are you then beholden to the person who put you in that position or are you beholden to the betterment of the law around the United States? And we have seen that the court has not always been on the side of uh, of Donald Trump, including those who he appointed. So, you know, he's going to hope that they come into his, you know, court here. Um, but but ultimately, we don't know what's going to happen. It's also worth pointing out here, Simi, that Judge Clarence Thomas has also faced, uh, you know, some criticism here that he didn't recuse himself from this case, considering his wife was caught up in the investigations linked to yeah. the efforts to overturn the election here. So the questions of court impartiality here and, and court legitimacy are weighing heavily not only on this decision on the justice's shoulder, but on the chief justice's shoulder, because this is his court and his legacy that could be impacted. Oh, boy. OK, so today is the day of arguments. How long do we expect this to last? Arguments will last for today, and then we throw our hands in the air uh, and play a waiting game. You know, they may shelve this. They may come back quick. They may, you know, hold off until the next term. We don't know what the decision's going to be. Reading the tea leaves, they don't usually take every case that comes to them. The fact that they fast-tracked this from a decision from Colorado that happened in December, they're hearing arguments in February. There's a real chance that we'll have something before the election, Mm. just how long before the election, we don't know. All right, Reggie, thank you for that. Thank you. Very consequential day today. That's Reggie. Giacchini, a Washington correspondent for Global News, with this case going before the U.S. Supreme Court. And of course, we will be hearing more about it. This is Mornings with Simi. We have dealt with some unusual, very unusual stories on the show before, but this next one falls into that category. It is unusual. And you've ever heard of vanishing twin syndrome? Well, our next guest is all too familiar with it. It happened to her. She was pregnant with twins until she suddenly wasn't. Well, what happened then? Eleanor Barker-White is the author of My Name is Eleanor and joins us now. Eleanor, thank you so much for being here. Hi there. Lovely to uh, meet you. What is Vanishing Twin Syndrome? Like, Did you know about this before? No, I had absolutely no idea. So um, I I went for a course of IVF with my husband because we'd been trying for a baby for over a year, nothing was happening, and we'd gone for IVF treatment. And, um, and then when we went to the first scan at eight to nine weeks, um, I was told that I was carrying twins. And that was quite a surprise, um, completely unexpected, and we were delighted. I went home and we discussed it and talked about all the practicalities of it. And um, I got used to the idea, was looking forward to it, and then when I went back to the next scan at uh, 13, around 13 weeks, and I was told that there was only one baby in the womb and that the other one had vanished. And uh, I'd had no bleeding, no symptoms of anything going wrong, no cramping. And, um, and they told me that sometimes it happens and it's called vanishing twin syndrome. And the baby just, uh, they, the baby just gets absorbed by the surviving twin. Okay, so how how did this impact you? Like, what what happened when your baby was born, and you, you still thought about this? Yeah, so I mean, even after, well, for the rest of the pregnancy, I just thought it was bizarre that my um, my other child could be carrying elements of the the other twin, and um, even after he was born, I just I, I thought it was phenomenal, and um, I couldn't really get my head around it because it sort of contradicted everything I sort of knew about biology and inheritance and genetics and it didn't really make any sense to me. And how is your son? So that when your son was born, did you notice anything? No, so I mean, he's very, very healthy. Um, Although he is quite sort of mature for his age, he's always been very stoic, quite quiet. And he does, he used to say that he sort of felt there was something just different about him, but he couldn't figure out why. Um, and I've, I've never made any secret of the fact that he's had a vanished twin, um, which he's perfectly fine with. But apart from that, he has no, you know, no 
other outward signs that anything had ever happened. So interesting. So what did you learn about vanishing twin syndrome? I'm sure you must have thought, I need to know more about this. Yes. Yeah, yes. I did. So, um, I mean, I, yeah, I was just sort of baffled by it all, really. So I, I did some research and I found that there was hardly anything about it on the Internet. And um, my husband was very matter of fact about it. And he said, oh, don't worry. You know, we've still got one. And let's focus on that. But I just I just wanted to learn more. And I found that when I started doing research, it was actually quite a common thing that nobody really talked about it. And um, there were forums, you know, on internet forums where people had discussed it. But it was almost like a whispered secret, like a guilty secret, as though, you know, it, it shouldn't really be talked about. We should just be grateful that we have this one twin remaining. So that was interesting for me. And I also discovered that there was the, um, well, later on when I started writing Eden, I discovered even more bizarre things. Um, that there was a case in 2014 where a man went for IVF and when his son was born, um, he wasn't an exact, he didn't come up as a genetic match to the child. He only had 10% um, genetic match to the child. And it turns out that 25% of his unborn vanished twins DNA was actually showing up in his son's DNA. Wow. Wow. So is this one of those, another one of these cases, do you think, where we tend to have silence around problems in childbirth or, you know, women's health issues where we didn't talk about them because women were just supposed to be so stoic about these things? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's probably it. And I think for me, I, I felt um, I should be grateful and that there were other people experiencing miscarriages and they had lost their child and they had nothing to show for it. And so I did feel, yeah, I did feel a little bit guilty that um, I shouldn't be complaining because I still had one child. And so over time you talked about, what was it like for you to write the book? So it was, yeah, it was really interesting actually. And it was cathartic. um, And it just, I needed to have that space from, so my son is now 16. um, And I needed to have that space in order to process it. I couldn't have written it soon after he was born or the few years afterwards um, because I actually also donated eggs and I had a phone call from the clinic afterwards to say that a little girl had been born as a result of my egg donation to another family. So that sort of compounded everything um, and that was quite curious. But um, yeah, so I, I just, I kept on thinking what happened to that other twin and is it inside my son somewhere? And I started thinking about it from a storytelling point of view. And I thought it would make a really interesting psychological thriller just exploring the dynamics in the family and how it would change them all if the vanished twin were to return. So do you know how common this is? Yes, so it's um, between 15 and 25% of all all multiple pregnancies um, result in vanishing twin syndrome. So it's not uncommon. And you still think about it every day? No, no, I don't now. I mean, now I've got distance from it and I'm very accepting of it. But I just thought it's lovely that I've been able to write the book and that some good has come out of it. It it, it is, yeah. yeah. Have you heard from other people? Yes, yeah, lots of other people. So um, when I was pregnant and had vanishing twin syndrome, I was on a lot of forums and I talked about it on forums. And a lot of other people came forward and talked about their experience. And um, even now with the book coming out, there, there are a lot of people that have, um, have said, oh, I know somebody this happened to, or my sister, this happened to my sister. And so, it's, yes, it's starting to be talked about, which is really lovely. Well, Eleanor, thank you so much for sharing the story with us today. Thank you. That's Eleanor Barker-White, author of My Name Was Eleanor, talking about how she was impacted by what's called vanishing twin syndrome. I was curious about how often does this happen? And they think it's between 15 to 35% of like multiple pregnancies. So pregnancies that resulted in multiple babies are reduced to a single fetus because of vanishing twin syndrome, right? So bizarre too. This is Mornings with Simi. 
The Winters Hotel fire resulted in two people being killed, dozens of people displaced from their home. It was a tragic situation, one that we are still trying to learn from. An inquest into the fire has wrapped up. Some recommendations were released this week and some very, I would say, pointed recommendations, actually, because the Winters Hotel was a privately owned building being operated as a single room occupancy hotel by Atira with funding from BC Housing. Now, it's a little bit convoluted, right? Because there were clearly issues about not enough staff training for emergencies, lax enforcement of fire safety and more. So will the recommendations make a difference? Well, Catherine Room is the interim CEO of Atira and joins us now to talk about that. Thank you very much for being here. Oh, good morning. Nice to be here. How do you feel about these recommendations that came out this week? You know, we 100% support the recommendations from the jury. I think that they were very thoughtful in their deliberation and they really addressed the entire system of how to keep people safe. And it's very important, I think, that now we have an opportunity. It's an inflection point to to implement those. Right, because it does show that Atira has quite a bit of work to do. There are lots of things that a lot of entities have to work on, absolutely. And, you know, we've worked hard since then to improve safety in all the buildings that house our tenants. But I think one thing is clear. The public doesn't need an inquest to know that SRO housing is not appropriate long-term housing for anyone. And do you think that's what had happened there in the Winters Hotel, that it was too permanent of a solution, perhaps? Well, you know, that's that's a good adjective because I think with the SROs, um, during Expo, there was a decision to for government to buy or lease them um, and to make sure that people weren't evicted during the World's Fair. That was supposed to be a temporary solution. It seems like a long time ago now, and these buildings are 100 to 120 years old. And they're just simply not able to produce the level of system safety, uh, both safety and security. And we've been advocating for that. I think it's, you know, the government knows. They know that the SRO system needs to change. And they know that the funding model for social and supportive housing is broken. And here you have non-profits supporting 3,000 women and children, gender diverse people, as Atira does. And we have an inability to appropriately invest in maintenance and repair for safety. So what do you think would work better then? Well, that's a good question. I think what we've been advocating and all of the supportive housing entities have is purpose-built housing. And these are some of the most marginalized people um, that I think the public expects, you know, this is taxpayer dollars, a minimal level of safety And we really want to make sure that people who are vulnerable, who have complex needs, are housed in locations where they can they can get well, they can see hope, they can move forward. I've spent my whole career as an engineer in and out of industrial sites, and I have never seen conditions as unsafe as what I see in in how we house our most marginalized citizens. Okay, so how hasn't that improved then, Catherine, given everything we learned from this Winters Hotel fire situation? Are you saying that things haven't gotten better? Well, that's right. Like, we know. And so the the issue is, how do we actually bring all of these partners together to make a difference? And Atira is co-hosting a housing and safety forum next week. We have the fire chief for Vancouver, Karen Fry, attending the deputy chief of the VPD, Fiona Wilson, and community and WorkSafe. And, you know, we would love to have BC Housing on a panel. And, uh, you know, I've invited them. I would love to have the minister come and join us and attend. And, and I await his agreement to do so because it's going to take all of us to improve this situation. So you're saying you're still waiting to get more input? Like, what have you heard from BC Housing in terms of making some of these recommendations? Well, I uh, I would have thought that after, you know, a considered thoughtful group of jury panelists at, for the coroner, after they spent two and a half weeks listening to witness testimony, which was heartbreaking, and then they released their recommendations on Monday, that the minister would call me and say, right, okay, we have our marching orders, we need to move forward. I mean, I know that he was busy, I think he, you know, he did a photo op or something in the morning, but you know, this is an opportunity now for us to get together. And the safety issue is, 
is just one part of it. There's a security issue as well, which is, you know, why we need to work with our first responder partners. Right. Because I guess what we've heard from the housing minister is they they agree about the shift away from privately owned SROs. But what you're saying is, well, that's great. But where, where are the details? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I do believe that there is probably a plan. And I think the public wants to see it. I also think that we may have a difference in what the urgency is. And so right now, with the funding model, particularly for -for not-for-profits, we have this very big machine that we put our budget requests in. There's no base funding for social housing. You have to reapply every year. And often, the maintenance and repair that we do is above and beyond what we're funded for, just to keep the buildings livable. And so we will wait sometimes a year to a year and a half to be paid. And I'm in a situation where unable to pay suppliers like security suppliers who then threatened to cut off security cameras and did so before Christmas. So you can't operate buildings without an appropriate level of health and safety and security funding. And this is just a larger part of the issue. We we know that the funding model doesn't work. We need to move to base funding. And I think it's a matter of some urgency. So, Catherine, what can Atira do better? Because clearly there were problems on that front, you know, with the recommendations showing there wasn't even like a fire safety plan, kind of some basic rules and things that were missing. What can Atira do better? Well, absolutely. I mean, Atira, uh, all of us who are providing social housing, there's so much learning that has to happen. And Atira established a safety task force that does monthly inspections in the SROs. We work with the Vancouver Fire and Rescue Services Inspectorate. Uh, They have a community safety and public education division, which is excellent, and we're using them for education and training. So there's lots of learning from this, without question. And we're, we're all in this together. I mean, this is, this is why we're holding this forum. And I think it's, it's an important opportunity here. Okay, so are you putting out a message then? Is there any meeting that you've got scheduled with BC Housing? Like, where is this progress going to come from? Well, I do meet with the CEO of BC Housing every two weeks. I think it's an opportunity um, for a stronger partnership. I, I do think that having a forum where you invite all of the partners in requires all of that thought leadership. Um, and I really look forward to to us moving forward. This These recommendations, two people who passed away tragically cannot die in vain. This is an opportunity for us to change things. I think the public would hope that we're listening. And so I I definitely invite the minister to, to come and participate in this housing forum next Tuesday on the 13th. All right. Well, Catherine, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you very much, Cindy. Appreciate that. That's Catherine Room, the interim CEO of Atira, talking about the recommendations from the Winters Hotel Fire Inquest. There is a lot of work to do. And is it time then in BC to move away from that model of privately owned buildings that are essentially run by, you know, not-for-profits and BC housing as SROs? And I think it seems like there's a lot of agreement that, yes, we need to do that. The question is how soon, how fast, and how much of a difference can that make? If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Housing is a challenge all over the place these days, particularly in very expensive Vancouver. So it means that people are, you know, trying different things to make it work for them. And at the same time, perhaps struggling to find a sense of community in all of that. It can be so challenging when it feels like the deck is just stacked against you. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, maybe you would consider something called co-housing. Well, there's a project in East Vancouver trying to tackle all of this, and we're going to learn about it now with Maria Fielder, lead marketer and equity member of East Van Co-Housing. Maria, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. What is co-housing? Great question. (laughs) So co-housing is uh, similar in many ways to a co-op. It's a, in our case, it could be a strata um, apartment building, where everybody has their own unit, uh, but we have extensive shared amenity spaces and the future residents actually design, fund, and work with professionals to build the building. So we have a say in our future intentional community and we want to know our neighbours and spend time with each other as well as having our own private space when we need it. 
Okay, so don't move into this uh, without realizing you're going to be sharing more space with your neighbors. Like it's an, it's an intentional community. Mm-hmm, exactly. You'll have everything that you would in a regular condo and the financing is similar to, you know, mortgage for a regular condo. But for example, a common house um, is often the heart of the, the building where there's a shared kitchen and a shared dining area where we'll have maybe three evening meals together a week or a brunch on a weekend. You sign up and you attend if you want to. You're not obliged to attend anything, but the invitation is always open so people can connect and, you know, really fight loneliness and isolation, which is often, um, you know, a challenge for many people in the city of Vancouver. So when you say extensive shared amenity spaces, can you describe some of those spaces? Like, what are we talking about? Totally. Um, So the beauty of it is that because future residents involved, we actually design and work with the architects. We've chosen the amenities. We discuss what are our values, what are the things that are important to us, and we design the spaces around that and the budget that we can afford. So in our case, I mentioned the common house, which is a key component because it brings people together who doesn't like to eat. Uh, And then, for example, a kid's room. Um, So while once you've finished eating dinner, the kids can go to the kids' room, which is next door. Parents can stay and, and have a drink and chat with other adults, but the kids are safe and playing with the other kids. Uh, a guest room. So you can still have a smaller unit. You know, you're paying only for the space you're going to use. But when you have guests in town, you can book them into that room for either a very low price, sometimes free. It depends on the, on the community. You know, bike storage, often people sharing bikes. Um, other things like a co-working space. Um, Many of us can work remotely these days. So actually building these facilities into the building not only makes it more convenient and gives us ways to connect with each other, but also saves us money uh, because we're not having to pay for those services necessarily in somewhere else in the city or say pay for childcare when often a parent can help watch over multiple kids at the same time because they're best friends just on the other floors. Right. So I guess, what is the price here? Because on the one hand, there are people who look for community, but people also can't afford a lot of what is out there. So is this is this uh, price friendlier or cheaper than buying a regular condo, a regular home? Great question. I would love to say that it were. The reality is, is that we are going to be similar to market pricing. Our goal as a community is to uh, keep the budget under $1,300 per square foot for a 2027 move-in. So this is not in today's money. This is in the future, which is comparable for the kind of 33rd and Kingsway area that we'll be in, nearer to 29th Avenue SkyTrain, Nice Van. Um, And really, the reason for this is because there's only two types of housing uh, with the city of Vancouver, social housing or market. And because we don't fit the pretty strict description for social housing, we're essentially in the same boat as all of the big commercial developers trying to make profit. We are not trying to make profit, but we don't have the financial strength of a big commercial developer you know, to get a better rate from the banks. We don't get any special funding, any subsidies, even though we're just regular people trying to build homes for local people in the future. Right. We are open to... You know, we've spoken to the government and we've been very clear we're open to offering. You know, we'd love to have affordable homes below market rentals. We're open to that, but we don't currently receive any funding to help us do that. We'd have to pay for it ourselves and it's hard enough to afford one unit in Vancouver, as many can understand. Right. How many units will be in this project? We're looking probably in around the 35-ish range. Um, we try to keep co-housing communities less than 100 people because we want to get larger than that. It, it's harder to keep the sense of the community and just the cost of bigger buildings gets higher as you need to be concrete rather than wood frame. Right. Okay. And so what about selling unit if somebody decides they're going to move on from this? You are asking all the right questions. This comes up all the time. Um, yeah. So in terms of uh, selling the unit, you would have the freedom um, to sell to who you want to. So imagine you've moved in, you've lived there for five years, circumstances change. Um, You can sell to whoever you want. The rest of the community can't, say, block who you sell it to. Um, Two differences. One, uh, obviously, if you've had a good 
good experience, you're probably going to want to bring somebody in that wants the community aspect because it is different to just a regular condo building where you don't talk to your neighbours and very individualistic often. Um, the second thing is we have interested lists. There are around nine or ten completed co-housing developments in like the greater Vancouver area and lower mainland. And basically, they're all full. And there are hundreds and hundreds of people on the wait list for each of the communities. So often, an email goes out to those interested people. And often, it gets bought without even going to the public market because there's so many people who see the value and want the opportunity to live there that we've we find somebody who wants it without even needing to, so you, you know, hmm. publicize it more widely. Okay, yeah. so then, Maria, if people are interested, where can they get more information? Yeah, great. If uh, folks are interested and want to know more, um, we have a website at www.eastvancohousing.ca. Uh, there's information about the project, and there's also an events page where you can attend an info session on Zoom, uh, and we have socials, we do tours of other co-housing communities, and we're also on Instagram and Facebook. And uh, if they contact us, somebody from the Marketing and Membership Committee will reach out to let folks know more. Okay, interesting. Maria, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you for having us. I appreciate it. That's Maria Fielder, an equity member and lead marketer for East Van Co-housing. So this is different. This is not for everyone. But if you strive to find a sense of community somewhere, uh, this might be the place for you. A lot of larger shared amenity spaces. You're kind of expected to be deeply into kind of your neighbors and spending time with them and, and doing things together. Check it out. If you are interested in that, certainly different. This is Mornings with Simi. Does a lake in Kamloops hold secrets about being the cradle of life? I mean, that sounds absolutely extraordinary, doesn't it? Well, scientists from the University of Washington have actually launched a groundbreaking study to try and figure that out. So we obviously want to know all about it. Dr. David Catling is with us now, a professor of astrobiology at the University of Washington and a senior author of this study. Dr. Catling, thanks for being here. Hello, good morning. What is so extraordinary about this particular location? Well, if you want to make life, you want to make genetic molecules. And, you know, probably a lot of people have had the COVID vaccine, which is the one with the RNA. And RNA and DNA have a lot of phosphate in them. It's basically, we call it the backbone of those molecules. But you don't really find that in nature. It's usually thousands, millions of times less in nature than you actually need to make those molecules from scratch. So we were kind of looking for places that have the highest concentration of this stuff in the world. And it turned out there's a lake about 150 kilometers northwest of Kamloops near the town of Clinton that has the highest phosphate level in the world. So we went there. The highest phosphate level in the world? Like, was it just randomly testing lakes? How did you find this out? Well, actually, it came about a funny way. It was tucked away, or at least the first, the measurement, the only measurement we knew of was tucked away in the back matter of a, of a master's thesis from the University of Saskatchewan. And uh, we were just, you know, surveying the literature and it's like, oh, you know, the student measured this in, in the 1990s. They didn't really realize that it was the highest level, but we did. And so we thought, well, we better go there and, and do some more work and see why this is. So that's, that was the objective of the study is to try to understand whether this, you know, how, how this came about and whether actually it'd be more likely um, at the origin of life about four billion years ago. And we think both of those things, uh, well, we answered one of them and, and we think it's true that more lakes would be like this on the early earth. Uh, okay, so what is it about this particular lake then that that makes it like this? Well, it's a very shallow lake, so it's only about you know thirty centimeters deep, a foot, uh, even you know at its deepest, which is in in June after the sort of spring rains, and then it also dries up in the summertime. Not completely; there is water underneath the sort of crust of salt. It's a bit like a creme brulee and a bit treacherous to walk across during the summertime because you can crack through the crust and, and, uh, and basically go into sort of water and quicksand underneath. 
but but when it dries up you know the uh, as it dries up this this concentrates the chemicals and actually it concentrates them to a level that chemists would use in the lab to make rna from scratch you know not just just from inorganic chemicals you make a biomolecule so and as far as we know it's the only place where that occurs or, or more or less maybe there's one other um, in California, but this is basically the place where you get the right, you know, the sweet spot, so to speak. Right. Now that you describe it this way and tell us, now I wonder, how has this gone unnoticed for so many years? Well, I guess people just were not thinking about what you need for the origin of life. And they didn't, you know, these experiments that people have done in the lab in test tubes and flasks are, re- are fairly recent. And, you know, what actual levels you can you can use so I think that's one of the things. It's just ongoing research. The other thing is that, you know, it's in a rural area um, away, from, away from the beaten track. It's not a place you'd ordinarily go to. You wouldn't turn down this dirt track and, you know, try to avoid the deer and the cows and, and in, the, in June be covered in, in mosquitoes to want to kind of go and look at this thing. But, um, but we did. And so we think that, you know, it, it goes back to an old idea which – was from Charles Darwin in the uh, in the 1800s, 1871. He proposed life probably began in something like what he called a, a little pond, and it would have to be shallow to concentrate the necessary ingredients. So this basically is like Darwin's little pond. Okay, so what are you doing with this information then? Well, we were trying to understand, you know, why should it be like this? And, and the answer is, you know, Phosphate normally gets locked up in insoluble minerals. So if you think about what's inside your mouth, your teeth, is calcium phosphate. And you probably noticed this morning that, you know, your teeth didn't dissolve because it's a very insoluble stuff, uh, the, the enamel on your teeth. And, and so that's where most of the phosphate ends up in the world. Um, in, and so natural waters are very, very low in this. Um, and what happens in this lake is that the calcium, the partner, in this in this scheme gets gets taken out into another mineral called dolomite maybe you've heard of the dolomites in italy that they're, they're mm-hmm. made of this magnesium calcium carbonate and so so the phosphate can build up um in the water in this particular type of lake which is called a, a soda lake rich in sodium carbonate like you know like baking soda it's a kind of like a baking soda lake and it is a type of lake that occurs elsewhere but this is kind of the most um, extreme example in some ways. So we think that the other thing about this lake is that it's sitting on top of the Caribou Plateau. And the geology of that plateau is it's a stack of lava flows. Um, and it's the kind of place that would have occurred on the, on the early Earth. Imagine the Earth before in life. There's lots of volcanic plains. Lots of, if you just looked around, it would be barren, a bit like parts of Hawaii where lavas have erupted. And this kind of lake develops, the chemistry of this kind of lake develops on, on lava plains. So we just we think these lakes would have been all over the early earth and, and would have been cradles for life to originate. And so you're kind of getting a window into the past with this, aren't you? We do, yeah. Often, often when we, we look at the present, you know, things are so different because, you know, every lake you look has, has got little creatures in it. This one's no exception. There's some kind of algae around the edges, not very much. Um, and there's, there's, there's critters, you know, microbes and what have you that are living in the lake. And they usually change things a lot. So if you're trying to look in modern places to what the early, light, early Earth was like, you know, you have to kind of modify your thinking and say, well, what would it be like without these algae? And th- in this particular case, the lake is quite salty, so not much can live in it. And so it's a bit like, you know, the prebiotic lakes where there wouldn't be anything living in it by definition. It's just that this one's not not a place where you really want to um, to live if you're right. If, if you're. If, yeah. Today. The, the irony, though, Dr. Catling, is that this lake is actually has a name. It's called Last Chance Lake. But really, it's not Last Chance Lake at all, is it? <laughs> no, it's more like the first chance of <laughs> first chance of life kind of lake. But, yeah, it's uh, I don't know. So a lot of these lakes have. Uh, whimsical names i guess the first explorers were maybe looking for water or something i guess this was this was the last chance but they would have been (laughs) sorry because it's like a baking soda lake and 
not something you and very salty, not something you want to drink. And and then it's next to one door, like a hundred meters away. There's another lake called Good Enough Lake, which is not quite good enough for us actually because it it doesn't have the same levels of phosphate. It does have high phosphate as lakes go, but not quite the same as Last Chance. Well, this is so fascinating. Thank you for telling us all about it right in our own backyard. Um, thanks for having me. That's Dr. David Catling, professor of astrobiology at the University of Washington and senior author of this study, where they're kind of looking for the ingredients that, you know, kind of push life along. And they think they have found it in this lake, Last Chance Lake uh, near Kamloops, about 150 kilometers northwest of Kamloops. And they find that it is, has these unique ingredients, highest level of phosphates they found in a lake anywhere, actually. And it is right here in B.C.